Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, episode 30. Welcome back. Please like and follow my Facebook page at Cunning of Geist. Now, the purpose of this entire podcast series, I've, I've boiled it down to four steps. First is that we have a mind. It is our greatest gift. Second, this mind has freedom, uh, which is the greatest attribute of the mind. Third, with this freedom comes purpose, the ability to chart our own course in life. And fourth, that the purpose provides a direction for meaningful action in our lives. So that's it in a nutshell. Now let's get on to the current episode, the I Ching, Synchronicity, and Hegel. I would first like to just step back for a moment and provide some background with my own involvement with the I Ching, the Book of Changes, as it is called. After I graduated from university, I had a dilemma. I had been actively pursuing music while in school, not as a music major, I was a psychology major, but I was playing in a very successful rock band in college. And now that school was done, I had to consider whether I would continue with with music and start a music career or go into the workforce or go on to graduate school. And on top of that, I was in a very serious relationship and was considering marriage. So what to do? It was a very confusing period in my life. And also at that time, I was starting to think much more philosophically about things, about the big questions in life. Why are we here? What's our purpose? What's the meaning of life? And so on. It was being pulled in many directions, and I really had no answers. And during this time, I would often scour the bookshelves of local bookstores in hopes of finding something, just anything that could help me with these big decisions. And there didn't seem to be much out there. Back then, there was no such thing as the internet. The whole self-help movement was not big back then. Libraries were very cumbersome in terms of finding anything helpful in this regard. You could spend hours in there looking for something, and it it turned out it was not on the shelf, etc. I was being pulled in all directions. My musician friends wanted me to stay in music. My parents wanted me to start working. My girlfriend, thank God, said it was up to me. And... I needed help. So I was hoping to find some kind of a book to help me. And then one day I was at the bookstore and I noticed a very odd looking book. On the cover was a picture of a wise old Asian man pointing at some strange looking symbols. I said, wow, this is weird. And the title was I Ching Book of Changes. It also said on the cover, rediscovered the world's oldest and most revered system of fortune telling the modern key to your true destiny. Wow, that was quite a statement. Something about the picture of the old man, the symbols, and the marketing blurb struck me. I bought the book, took it back to my apartment, and began studying it. And I must say, it provided immeasurable help to me during this difficult period. It was really my guide, and I was able to use it successfully regarding the major decisions I was about to make in my life in terms of moving forward. And I've used it. It's been a a lifelong companion to me when facing difficult choices and decisions to this day. So how does it work? What's the I Ching all about? Well, I'll get into that in a minute, but let me just give a brief overview. Um, It starts by either using yarrow stalks or throwing coins. You create a hexagram, and I'll explain this in a minute. The hexagram is a six-line figure which is a fundamental explanation of the situation that you are in, you're currently in. And 
there is a body of text that goes with the hexagram. Um, and there are images of mountains, of streams, of clouds, of rain, of great bodies of water, of great people, of family members, the, you know, the oldest son, the youngest daughter, father, mother. Um, they talk a lot about simple inventions like wells, bridges, roofs, things like that. And then there's advice. Um, some of it is very general and abstract, and some of it is quite specific. There's also the potential for movement as one hexagram can change into another previewing the result of a possible activity. One must use their own creativity in reading the hexagram, as this doesn't tell you your, your exact problem and what to do. But there are enough hints, and, and if you use your imagination and read what it's telling you, oftentimes it, it, um, it's strikingly clear in terms of its direction and its understanding of the problem. It's also quite poetic and imaginative. And as I said, it's, it's outstandingly accurate. Now, why am I bringing this up here in this episode, other than it's an interesting story about my life? Well, here's why. There's it, it a key concept here which moved me at the time, and now I think I understand it much better, having studied Hegel and, and some of the things we talked about with quantum physics. And that's, that's a term called synchronicity. Now, this term synchronicity was coined by the great analytic psychologist Carl Jung, and I believe it also has much to do with Hegelian philosophy, as we will discuss in a moment, as well as quantum physics, which we've talked about several times in various episodes. Now, let's go in, into a little bit more of a deep dive into the I Ching basics. It's also called the Book of Changes. So right away, you can see it's a book about a movement, process, and evolution. It's not a left-brain stagnant affair breaking the problem down into smaller and smaller items. It's one of the oldest and most revered Chinese texts. It dates back at least to the beginning of the first millennium BCE, and probably goes back before that. And it was revised and expanded during this period. And um, it, it became a, a cosmology as well as a moral and ethic philosophy. It's considered to be one of the five classics of Confucianism. And um, at its core, as I mentioned with the coins of the Yerostocks, it's a geomancy, which is a fancy word of seeking knowledge of the future by means of geometric figures or lines on the ground. That's where the term comes from, geomancy, foresight by earth. Now, that sounds very primitive and superstitious, but... With the I Ching over the centuries, beautiful philosophical and moral interpretations have been added by Confucius and, and others to the oracle function, to the basic oracle function. Confucius himself said that if he had 50 years to spare, he would devote them entirely to the I Ching. And that's according to Jane Needham in his article in Science and Civilization in China. Also, Confucius wrote a good part of the uh, commentary to the I Ching. It's called the Ten Commentaries or the Ten Wings, and it's been added to the basic text of the I Ching. So it's very much a Confucius document as well. Uh, Confucius and the others that, that added to it transformed it from a regular geomancy into a philosophical masterpiece, as, so says Ralph Abraham in The Legendary History of the I Ching. Now, how does it work? Okay. There are two ways to do it. The traditional way is getting a, uh, a set of 50 yarrow stalks. And then you take one and set it aside so you have 49. And then you split that group into two groups. And I won't go into the details. Then you, you take these two groups and you do certain procedures 
which results in a number either two or three. The two is a yin or divided, and the three is a yang or a solid. Now, this procedure is then repeated three times, and you end up with uh, one of four different situations. You either get three twos in a row, three yins, two plus two plus two, and that yields six, an even number, which is a yin. If you get two yins and one yang, a two, two, and a three, that totals seven, and that's an odd number, which is a yang. If you get two yangs and a yin, the three, three, and a two, that totals eight, an even number, and that's back to a yin again. And the last is when you get three threes, uh, three yangs, three plus three plus three, you get nine, an odd number, which is a yang. So after the, you do the Eurostock three times, you have one of four numbers, six, seven, eight, or nine, okay? And these four correspond to possible lines in the hexagram, but there's more. The six and the nine, the, the three twos or the three threes, the six and the nine are considered moving lines. They're active. The seven and the eight are considered static lines. They're not active. The six is a moving yin and the eight is a moving yang. Now, the reason I get into the, all this detail is yin and yang and moving and static are key concepts of the I Ching, yet they also correspond very clearly to Hegel's being and nothing and his notion of becoming. And we'll get more into this later. Now, the process, this process of creating a line, a yin or yang, moving or static, this is done six times in a row, yielding a hexagram. The first line is put at the bottom, then the next on top of that, and so on, until you have a six-line figure of various yin-yang moving static lines. In total, when you do the six lines, there are a total of 4,096 possible hexagrams you can get with this method. That's four to the sixth power for you mathematicians out there. Now, traditionally, yarrow stalks are used because it's believed that the yarrow flower plant collects energy, and this energy spirals down to the stalk. It's also uh, traditionally believed that using yarrow stalks from your own region or locality or even your own garden produces better results for your own individual reading as you and the stalks will be more in tune with each other. All this adds to the aura and mystique of the I Ching. However, there's a much simpler method. You don't have to be planting yarrow plants in your, in your garden. The one way to do it is just to toss three coins in the air and let them fall. Heads is a yin, two, tails is a yang, three. You throw the three coins, you add it up six times, and you've got your hexagram. Now, in full disclosure, the odds of getting a six, seven, eight, nine change slightly between the coin method and the arrow stick method, but it's not that much to make a big deal about. And I personally have only used the coin method when consulting the I Ching for guidance, and many also only use the coin method. Now, before you throw the coins or divide the arrow stocks, it's very important to think through your question for the I Ching very carefully. The more you think about it, the better the reading you're going to get. Think through all the ramifications, all the issues, all that you're struggling with. Um, it should be a question in which you need help on legitimately. You, you shouldn't try to game the I Ching. You know, which horse is going to win the, the race or something like that. Make it meaningful to yourself. The more meaningful the situation is to you, the better the reading is going to be. Put yourself in a reverential mood and then cast your lot. Now, the big question is, does this work? 
And if so, why? How? How could this possibly work? It sounds like magic, something very unscientific, very superstitious, very primitive. And those are all good, legitimate questions. Now, what is key to me about the I Ching and the reason why I think it works is the notion of synchronicity. Let me explain. Jung, as I said, coined the term synchronicity to describe what he calls a meaningfully related, yet something that does not have a causal connection. He actually wrote a a paper on this called Synchronicity, an A-Causal Connecting Principle. Jung himself wrote the introduction to the Wilhelm Baines edition of the I Ching, which is published in 1950, and it's by far the best edition and commentary one can get. As an aside, the original I Ching book I found in the bookstore was the James Legg translation, which is older from the 19th century. Still good, but nowhere equal to the Wilhelm Baines edition, which is the gold standard. Now, synchronicity. In my early experiments with the I Ching, I was getting a strong intuitive sense that at the moment I would throw the coins, there was some kind of connection to my act of throwing the coins and the question that I was contemplating and the reading I was about to get. It all coalesced into one instant and it was connected. It was in sync somehow. It was the truth of that moment. And I felt this in a very powerful way and it made a very deep impression on me. Later, looking back, I believe it had a lot to do with what Hegel famously says, substance is subject. It's the notion we did a whole episode on, on episode 24. It's identity and difference. The world out there is connected to the world in here, to the mind. It's one. And also, looking back now, I sense a correspondence to quantum physics, which we've talked a lot about here, that uh, the observer measurement somehow brings the material Uh, world into actuality, that there's a link. I didn't formulate it like that at the time back then, but I do now. It it certainly back then was a very mystical experience of oneness. I didn't even know what a mystical experience was back then, but but I had it. But I understand much better now how I can put that into context of what was actually happening. Now let's get back to Jung and synchronicity. I'd like to read a, um, a couple of quotes from Jung from the uh, foreword to the, to the I Ching that he wrote. Quote, the manner in which the I Ching tends to look upon reality seems to disfavor our causalistic procedures. The matter of interest seems to be the configuration formed by chance events in the moment of observation and not at all the hypothetical reasons that seemingly account for the coincidence. While the Western mind carefully sifts, weighs, selects, classifies, isolates, the Chinese picture of the moment encompasses everything down to the minutest nonsensical detail because all of the ingredients make up the observed moment, end quote. Let me repeat that last note. All the ingredients make up the observed moment. Now, this is a clear statement of the Western left brain versus the more holistic Chinese right brain orientation. Uh, And the holistic view encompasses both the observer and the observed. Jung goes on, quote, The ancient Chinese mind contemplates the cosmos in a way comparable to that of the modern physicist who cannot deny that his model of the world is a decidedly psychophysical structure. The microphysical event includes the observer just as much as the reality underlying the I Ching compromises subjective, i.e. psychic conditions in the totality of the momentary situation. 
Just as causality describes the sequence of events, so synchronicity to the Chinese mind deals with the coincidence of events that are happening at the same time, end quote. This is a, a key statement. It corresponds to what I said a moment ago about quantum physics. The microphysical incorporates the observer in one synchronistic moment. Jung follows this up beautifully. He said, quote, It is assumed that the fall of the coins or the result of the division of the bundle of euro stocks is what is necessarily must be in a given situation. And as much as anything happening in that moment belongs to it as an indispensable part of that picture, end quote. Again, what I felt back then was this whole thing was one indispensable moment. You couldn't separate one thing out of it. And that's why it was important. And that's why it, it was meaningful. So that's it in a nutshell. Uh, the hexagram combines the questioner, the question, the response, which comes from the I Ching's body of wisdom, all in one moment. Now, so let's get into a little bit the correspondence to Hegel. First of all, Hegel actually wrote a a few paragraphs on the I Ching in his history of philosophy. And he didn't really have much to say about it. Uh, and it wasn't, uh, it certainly wasn't positive. Now, it, in fairness, uh, we must point out there was only one translation available at the time. It was a Latin one done in the 1730s, and it was very primitive. Um, the better translations occurred after his time. So he may not have, not have been dealing with the, the best source here in terms of looking at the I Ching. But just let me digress a little bit before we get into Hegel. It's interesting that Leibniz uh, was a fan of the I Ching. We discussed Leibniz in the last episode, why is there something rather than nothing? And he was an early pioneer of the binary number system, zero and one, which is used today in, in computing code. Leibniz discussed the I Ching in a 1703 article entitled Explanation of Binary Arithmetic, which uses only the characters one and zero with some remarks on its usefulness and on the light it throws on the ancient Chinese figures of Fu Shai. Fu Shai is the traditional founder and developer of the I Ching. Leibniz interpreted the hexagrams of the I Ching as evidence of binary calculus. Binary numerals were central to Leibniz's theology. He believed that binary numbers were symbolic of the Christian idea of creation out of nothing. Let me quote Leibniz. A concept that is not easy to impart to the pagans is the creation ex nihilo through God's almighty power. Now, one can say that nothing in the world can better present and demonstrate this power than in the origin of numbers. It is presented here through the simple and unadorned presentation of one and zero or nothing. This is from a letter he wrote to the Duke of Brunswick, and he attached the eaching hexagrams. Now, Hegel did not share this view, though, of Leibniz. He, he found the yin and yang symbols purely abstract and not of much value. He states in the History of Philosophy that uh, the author of the I Ching, quote, that that which is there by him related passes into what is quite mythological, fabulous, and even senseless, end quote. He goes on, quote, These symbols are quite abstract categories and consequently the most superficial determinations of the understanding, end quote. So there's no reason here, no vernunft, and just barely verstant understanding, just the most superficial determinations of the left brain. Now, is Hegel right here? I don't believe so. First of all, his section on the I Ching was just a few short paragraphs, and it was in his whole analysis of Chinese philosophy, which is part of his, what he called the Oriental philosophy. 
So he was just sort of putting it in there, phoning it in, if you will, I believe, and didn't really put much thought into it and didn't really have quite the translations and the wisdom thinking that we have today on on the I Ching. As, as you know, as we've discussed, Hegel sees the history, history of human beings as the march of greater consciousness of our freedom. And he divides us into three epics, the Oriental, first, then the Greek Romans, and then the Germanic peoples of Europe, as he calls it. Let me quote here. This is probably about as bad as it's going to get uh, in terms of Hegel being uh, politically incorrect. Let me quote, Orientals do not yet know that spirit, man as such, is free. And because they do not know it, they are not free. They only know that one is free, but for this very reason, such freedom is but an accident of nature. This one is therefore only a despot, not a free man. The consciousness of freedom first arose among the Greeks, and therefore they were free. But they, and the Romans likewise, only knew that some are free, not man as such. This not even Plato and Aristotle knew. For this reason, the Greeks had slavery, upon which was based their whole life and maintenance of their splendid liberty. Only the Germanic peoples came through Christianity to realize that man is free and that freedom of spirit is the very essence of man's nature. That's from his Lectures on the Philosophy of History, 1857, Nisbet Translation, page 54. Um, so his dismissive attitude is clear. And I've got to say, there's been much written on Hegel's Eurocentrism. Some of it's quite harsh. This comes up periodically in the Hegel study group on Facebook. I'm not going to get into it here, but I must say it's hard to separate out Hegel from the basic European thinking of his day in the early 19th century. And most scholars do not feel it really affected his core philosophies at all. And um, even his notion of the march of freedom in the world. Uh, it seems that a lot of what he said here and how he classified peoples was based on his own ignorance and um, not really a, an in-depth understanding of what was going on in each of these various cultures. And certainly he did not understand the incredibly rich and different methods of, of Asian thinking, which we're talking about here today. Now, it, also, the richest translation of the I Ching, the one Jung wrote the foreword for, was, it was translated originally by Richard Wilhelm. He was a German sinologist and theologian. He spent 25 years in China studying the I Ching, and, and actually working with it. His, his translation in 1923 into German was viewed as the gold standard, and this translation was in turn translated into English by Carrie Baines and published in 1950, including the foreword by Jung. And this is the book in translation that really put the I Ching on the map. Wilhelm was clearly an advanced spiritual, moral, and philosophical mind, and his translations bring it alive on many levels. But nonetheless, even Hegel's dismissive attitude toward it, there are clear parallels uh, of the I Ching to Hegel. Let's explore. First, yin and yang. Yin, the divided line, and yang, the undivided line, are core concepts of the I Ching. Yang is seen as active, yin is passive. Yang is light, yin is dark. Yang is expanding, yin is contracting. Yang is summer, yin is winter. You get the point. The concept of yin and yang can also be compared, obviously, to being in nothing. Last episode, we discussed why is there something rather than nothing, and we came to the conclusion there's both something and nothing, that it's a bad question. And likewise, in the I Ching, there's both yin and yang. There's a very famous book also coming out of China in the first millennium BC, the Tao Te Ching, 
Um, it was written purportedly by Lao Tzu in the 6th century BCE, and it expresses this notion of being in nothingness very well. I'll read um, some passages from the Da Di Jing. Quote, non-being and being turn out concurrently, but point to different directions. Both together can be called the mysterious transforming power. They constantly transform into each other and form the gateways for all wonderful things. That's from chapter one. Another, being and non-being produce each other. That's from chapter two. The oneness consists of being and non-being and existed before the birth of heaven and earth. Oh, so silence and vast. It is standing alone and invariable, circulating and ceaseless. It may be regarded as the mother of all things, from chapter 25. So this is clear correspondence to Hegel's being and nothing from the opening of Hegel's Science of Logic. Just as important as yin-yang, though, however, is the notion of moving versus static lines. The I Ching is also entitled the Book of Changes, um, and change is inherent in the hexagrams. The hexagrams actually change depending on how many moving lines they have. If line comes up a six, meaning three twos are thrown, it is a moving in, and it changes to a divided static in uh, an eight. If a line is undivided in a nine, three threes, it's a moving yang, and it changes to an um, um, undivided line seven, a static yang. So if your first hexagram contains one or more moving lines, you have created a second hexagram as well. The first tells you your situation, explains it, tells you what to do. The second one tells you what to expect if you act according to the first one. If you have a fully static hexagram with no moving lines, it's not considered a particularly strong reading. Um, You should read it and think about it, but there's something, maybe you haven't thought the problem out as correctly as you should have, or expressed a question as best you could. Now, lastly, there's the notion of synchronicity. Obviously, quantum physics came after Hegel, but his notion of the identity of subject and substance being one is very consistent with this. And we've discussed this here so often. We are not separate from the universe. Our minds are part of it, and our perceptions can influence the world out there. And the cosmos has recommendations for us if we want to tune in to the collective mind and do what we should be doing. Well, we've covered a lot here. That's it for this episode. Please like and follow my Facebook page at Cunning of Guys, and I will be listing all the references contained in this episode at that page. So if you want to follow up on anything, all the references will be listed there at Cunning of Geist on Facebook. Please tell your like-minded friends about this podcast if they might be interested. And I just want to say thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate all the great feedback. This is Gregory Novak. This is the Cunning of Geist. See you next time.